So it is lovely to be here again. Just always a pleasure. Sometimes there's not words uh, to express my appreciation uh, for all the work that... Do you have a board of directors or a council or a team of organisers? For all of you who both organise and then come here and practice and um, create this environment for someone like me to come and um, practice with you. Uh, it feels like an honour. So thank you. Thank you for turning up. Thank you for your practice. And thank you for sitting with your minds and bodies just as they are through that 40 minutes. It's um, it's a courageous act. <laughs> What's that? Thank you, Beck. <laughs> so I wanted to start. Is this really okay? It seems like it's so reverberating. It's is it? Yeah, it's pretty good. It is. <laughs> Loud, clear, and weird. That's life, isn't it? <laughs> It's at Berkeley, right? I wanted to begin this Dharma talk by reading something um, called Odds and Guard by Chaya Malika. Three percent nothing. Do it, says my friend Julie. Two to three percent of people who undergo the chemotherapy prescribed by my oncologist get permanent neuropathy. Nerve damage in the hands and feet. Three percent's nothing. Easy for you to be so cavalier, I fumed to myself. You don't have cancer. Three percent's not a big risk. Have the chemo, echoes a woman in my cancer survivor group. I try to picture three percent. A hundred people is perhaps a full house in a small movie theater. A theater in a multiplex. Three people, that's half of half a row. I could be one of them rising painfully from my seat after the movie and limping out of the theatre on nerve-damaged feet. To others, the choice is obvious, but the chemo my oncologist recommends, CVP rituxan, could cause permanent neuropathy, and neuropathy might mean I couldn't dance anymore. And then, would I want to live? I need dance belly dance, like I need drinking water. The oncologist offers an alternative chemotherapy called fluorodurabine. I like at night. I cannot say yes to either option. You call these options? I consider letting the cancer kill me. The problem with this choice is what happens before I die. I'd get sicker and sicker. The tumors would grow, possibly causing lung failure or a stroke. Not great for dancing. The appointment day arrives, and I still don't know if I can go through with it. 
At the hospital, a nurse takes my vitals, inserts an IV tube in my wrist. I say a blessing, chemo starts. I lie in bed, gazing out of the plate glass window at a tree-covered hill. Sharon sits close by, working on her laptop. Just moments after the session ends, I hear Sharon exclaim, Look! She says, pointing out the window, I turn and see a double rainbow. Sharon rushes out to guess the nurse. Call me crazy, the nurse says, but I believe in signs you're going to get well. Four days later, I get neuropathy, the tingling and numbness in my feet and hands that I've been dreading. But the oncologist lowers the chemo dosage and I continue treatments. My tumors go away. A few months after treatment ends, so does the neuropathy. I practice spinning. So I wanted to talk about the unpredictability of life and the ways that we face both those possibilities of healing and I have a friend in Amherst, Massachusetts, who got diagnosed with liver cancer, which and it had a very bad prognosis. And it's been a couple of years, and she's still alive. And then also, I um, have a nerve damage myself, which is why I was lying down in my spine. And I was at a spinal support group at Alta Bates a number of weeks ago. And um, I arrived early and was lying down um, on the sort of throne of chairs. And um, people, most of the people who came into the group were in wheelchairs. And the facilitator talked about one of the members who had been coming for years who had killed himself. And he talked about the reason why, which is that there wasn't a reason particularly. It was just a bit more pain and losing a little more control over his own functions, um, his father dying, and somehow all those unpredictable things that happened came together in a way that it became too much. And I think about this challenge that we're all facing, whether it gets better before we die or whether it doesn't. And that challenge the Buddha speaks to. And we're here because in some way in our hearts, we are rising to that challenge. And that challenge is about how do I face that unpredictability? How can I open or how can I guide myself to that vision of opening to the unpredictability and the, the pain um, and the difficulty and meet it with love and meet it with compassion and meet it with peace. Or another way of saying it is not resisting it. 
and being very much on this journey myself as I face um, physical pain every day and also what it means to lose the um, the ability to do a lot of things like household chores or jogging or kayaking or dancing or um, even walking for long periods of time and and understand that it is a process that the that the mind takes a while to open to what it means when we let go of wanting it to have a good outcome and realizing that there's all part, that there are expressions in our life that each one of us have gone through that haven't been quote a good outcome it might have been that our marriages have broken um, or have ended painfully or it might be like me that some of you are working with physical challenges or mental challenges. It might be that some of our children have left in anger. It might be that it is extraordinarily difficult to live in this world with the unpredictability of oil spills and the death and the suffering that comes from it. Just to, just to acknowledge that, and I want to speak about the two levels of acknowledgement that feel so important in the healing process. And the first level of acknowledgement is that place of, one, accepting resistance and judgment that comes up when we're first faced with the challenges of this unpredictable life. That that is how it is. And I, and I speak to that because I was just at my therapist today and I was talking about actually not being able to change my bed and, and what it means to sleep in a bed where the sheets are dirtier than I want them to be. And as I was talking about it and talking about opening to new ways of negotiating my life. I saw this place of shame and it, and this conditioning that I had grown up with about what success and failure looks like. And that somehow, even though it's not something that I have direct control over, it felt like I was a failure. That there's something about not being fully abled that feels like I'm being a failure. And that there's something about sleeping in sheets that are dirtier than I want that is about being a failure. And, and I, and I really bowed down in my therapy session to what it means to acknowledge that conditioning and how much that conditioning isolates us when we believe it. And how liberating it is to open to the Buddha's teaching that says, 
This isn't about personal failure or success. When we face the unpredictable expression of life and what it means, it's really about opening our hearts in a way that helps us to navigate first the judgment and the shame that come up, and then also that deep trust that this is the human condition, that we are living in the human condition, and that every one of us here, in some way or another, is facing that same challenge. And it might not be around physical disability or ability, but it is around something where we take that unpredictability of life and turn it into a physical picture of success or of failure and not success. So that's the first, that's sort of the first invitation. But the second invitation that I want to go into even more deeply is what is how we hold it in silence. And it really reminded me, because I went to a filming by Shakti Butler, um, and this filming was about different groups of people talking about the pain of their, experience, of their experience and oppression. So there was a group of people, it was actually a film about women, there was a group of African-American women talking about the pain of racism, and then there were a group of native indigenous women talking about their experiences. And I, I just felt really struck by what it means, you know, talking about the unpredictable nature of life, what it means to be born as an indigenous woman and how so many of them were forced forced out of their families and placed in adoption in white families and lost their history and lost their culture. And um, what it means when you are separated from your history and the incredible pain of that and the incredible pain of being seen as not good enough, that somehow you have to be re-educated because you don't look white and you don't behave as white people do. And so we and so we um, listen to different people. We listen to some. Um, uh, people who were biracial and the pain they spoke about in not belonging to either um, European-American communities or um, African-American communities and that feeling of dislocation and the pain of that. So different groups talking about the pain they experienced. And afterwards we went round in a circle and we were a mixed group and each person passed a little box and we talked about the anger that we felt or the fear that we felt. And I, and I saw how much of the way oppression works is to hold the pain that we feel in silence and how truly radical it is when we break our silence and share our pain. And how that circle of people sharing their pain was actually a circle of making history. 
and I reflect on the consciousness raising groups that I've been part of as a woman. There's early consciousness raising groups in the 70s. And the pain that women spoke about in those groups and how in sharing that place of either feeling um, hard to embody being a whole person because so many of us felt objectified as wives or as bodies or as mothers, for example, or feeling that we weren't ever quite equal to men or um, um, the struggles of hating our bodies because they were never they never looked the way bodies looked in the pages in the fashion magazines and in movies, the different ways that we spoke about our experiences and how that process of opening and talking about our experiences actually began to transform it because we were disidentifying with that judgment and shame and blame and allowing the sharing to become part of making history as a community. And how that making history became the basis for all the things that have subsequently happened, like ERA, um, or like women's health centers, or like um, um, reproductive rights, for example, like Ms. Magazine, like all the sorts of changes that subsequently came from those early sharing. And I also think of the beginning of the trade union movement and how much of that movement to fight for decent working conditions that so many of us have inherited have come about because people shared their pain of what it meant to work in conditions that were painful and difficult. And so I see how much the ways that we feel isolated and, and um, separate in our lives have to do with, the, with that believing the shame and blame about the pain and grief that we experience because of the unpredictability of life and how that man in the wheelchair killed himself, not really because there was more pain that he experienced or an increasing lack of control, but rather because of believing that somehow because he was experiencing those experiences, it was something to be ashamed of. And what a radical act it is to really open up with each other and share deeply what it is that we are carrying inside. Because when we do, not only is it transformative individually, but it becomes transformative socially. And that actually has been the basis, not only of all the social movements, but also of the Dharma. It was actually the Buddha acknowledging what was so difficult and painful that then came this understanding of, oh, there is a path of transformation, you know? And that it is in the facing of it 
that we then see the path. The thing is that when we first face it, we don't see the path until we're really there and we're in touch with it, both whether it's through the practice of mindfulness or whether it's through the practice of opening to our friends or the Sangha. You know, and so just to acknowledge, because often we can't do it by ourselves. And, you know, I know you have heard plenty of Dharma talks that over and over again have acknowledged what the Buddha said to Ananda when Ananda said, is the Sangha part of the holy life? And the Buddha says, no, Ananda, it's not part of the holy life. It's the whole of the holy life. That acknowledgement that we actually, there is a way in which we cannot carry our pain and suffering by ourselves. That is what history tells us and that is what the Buddha tells us. And I watch the ways when I look at the oil gushing out of those pipes. I watch the ways that I both acknowledge the incredible pain of it and also turn away from it. And that there is something about coming together as a community dedicated to liberation and together acknowledging that and together saying, yes, we hold that. We hold not only the unpredictability of a pipe bursting, but we hold what happens when human beings don't have the courage to open to their own pain and suffering. And when they don't, how that is turned towards a dismissal of the heart and a movement to power and control. Because the movement to power and control is about a dismissal of the heart. And when that movement to power and control is institutionalized, we end up with something like BP. So we are holding as a community not just the pain of all those fishes and birds who are dying and the mammals in the sea who are dying and the grass that is dying. We're also holding the weight of hearts that haven't opened and what that means. And when we hold that as a community, we also extend to hold that with ourselves, that in this moment, each one of us, in some way or another, has that invitation of turning more fully to those places that we have turned away from. And the Buddha says, and we each know this inside of ourselves because we learn it over and over again, that it is in this turning that our hearts open. And that there is something that is truly magnificent when, as a community, we can do it together. However, as a community, we do do it together. And having come from South Africa, I 
acknowledge that the turning that Mandela and Subakwe and so many people in that community did, rather than shutting down their hearts, turning towards it and opening so much to the suffering of apartheid that they were able to actually begin to move into reparation. Or of um, Maureen McGuire in Ireland, or of um, John Trudell in, in, um, in working with indigenous peoples. There are many, many of us who, who call us to that opening and in that calling create a momentum that actually allows for reparation. And the, when I was, this, when I was <laughs> younger, and I'm still learning this, somehow I thought that we just needed to do it once. Like once the ANC came to power, once Mandela came to power, that everything would be okay. And we know that's not true. The, um, the ANC have made plenty of mistakes, plenty. They're, they made terrible decisions around AIDS, and the AIDS epidemic is huge. One in three people is um, living with AIDS. They made terrible economic decisions, and there's more poverty now than there was actually under the apartheid system. And yet... We can't dismiss those moments in the same way that we can't dismiss the moments of, of, of civil rights or of the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered community being able to marry in Massachusetts or Vermont or Connecticut. That, that even with Prop 8 failing here, we can't dismiss those moments when we come together as a communities and acknowledge the pain and in that acknowledgement find our agency to begin to transform. And so it's the sort of beginning again over and over again. And when I was at Plum Village studying with Thich Nhat Hanh, he talked about this king who really, really wanted to study the Dharma. And the king went to a, a very um, wise monk and said, I'm thinking of giving up my um, crown because I really want to study the Dharma. And the monk, the monk said, you don't have to. All you have to do in the busyness of your life is to begin again. You just keep beginning again. And doesn't it feel that way in terms of our own healing, that we have to keep beginning again and beginning again and beginning again, and that there are moments when we face what life brings us, and then somehow things open and it's easy for a while. And we found that historically, and then we find, oh my God, I have to begin again, and I have to begin again. And so we find ourselves in this deep practice of beginning again, of facing suffering, and beginning again, of facing suffering, and beginning again, and facing suffering. And this facing suffering doesn't come from this place of, oh God, you know, I'm, I'm so horrible. But it can come from this place of, actually, in the facing, I find my dignity. 
And it is not in our perfection, but in our imperfection that we find our dignity. It is not in turning away from the failures of history, but turning towards them and acknowledging them that we find our power and our dignity. So um, I wanted to read this. From you might, you might all, and some of you have heard this from uh, Clarissa Pinkoli Estes. You were made for this. My friends, do not lose heart. We were made for these times. I have heard from so many recently who are deeply and properly bewildered. They are concerned about the state of affairs in our world right now. Ours is a time of almost daily astonishment and often righteous rage over the latest degradations of what matters most to civilized visionary people. You are right in your assessments. The luster and hubris some have aspired to while endorsing acts so heinous against children, elders, everyday people, the poor, the unguarded, the helpless, is breathtaking. Yet, I urge you, ask you, gentle you, to please not spend your spirit dry by bewailing these difficult times. Especially do not lose hope. Most particularly because the fact is that we were made for these times. Yes. For years, we have been learning, practicing, been in training for, and just waiting to meet on this exact plane of engagement. I grew up on the Great Lakes and recognize a seaworthy vessel when I see one. Regarding awakened souls, there have never been more able vessels in the water than there are right now across the world. And they are fully provisioned and able to signal one another as never before in the history of humankind. Look out over the prow. There are millions of boats of righteous souls on the waters with you. Even though your veneer may shiver from every wave in the stormy royal, I assure you that the long timbers composing your prow and rudder come from a greater forest. That long-grained lumber is known to withstand storms, to hold together, to hold its own, and to advance regardless. In any dark time, there is a tendency to veer towards fainting over how much is wrong or unmended in the world. Do not focus on that. There is a tendency, too, to fall into being weakened by dwelling on what is outside your reach, by what cannot yet be. Do not focus there. That is bending the wind without raising the sails. We are needed. That is all we can know. And though we meet resistance, we more so will meet great souls who will hail us, love us, and guide us, and we will know them when they appear. Didn't you say you were a believer? Didn't you say you pledged to listen to a voice greater? Didn't you ask for grace? Don't you remember that to be in grace means to submit to the voice greater? 
Ours is not the task of fixing the entire world all at once, but of stretching out to meet the part of the world that is within our reach. Any small calm thing that one soul can do to help another soul, to assist some portion of this poor suffering world will help immensely. It is not given to us to know which acts or by whom will cause the critical mass to tip towards the enduring good. What is needed for dramatic change is an accumulation of acts, adding, adding to, adding more, continuing. We know that it does not take everyone on earth to bring justice and peace, but only a small, determined group who will not give up during the first, second, or hundredth gale. One of the most calming and powerful actions you can do to intervene in a stormy world is to stand up and show your soul. Soul on deck shines like gold in dark times. The light of the soul throws sparks, can send up flares, builds signal fires, and causes proper matters to catch fire. To display the lantern of soul in shadowy times like these, to be fierce, to show mercy towards others. Both are acts of immense bravery and greatest necessity. Struggling souls catch light from other souls who are fully lit and willing to show it. If you would help to calm the tumult, this is one of the strongest things you can do. There will always be times when you feel discouraged. I, too, have felt despair many times in my life but I do not keep a chair for it. I will not entertain it. It is not allowed to eat from my plate. The reason is this. In my uttermost bones, I know something as do you. It is that there can be no despair when you remember why you came to earth, who you serve and who sent you here. The good words we say and the good deeds we do are not ours. They are the words and deeds of the one who brought us here. In that spirit, I hope you will write on your wall. When a great ship is in harbor and moored, it is safe. There can be no doubt. But that is not what great ships are built for. So, it is true that our great ships... um, have the option of going into harbor when we need a rest, of staying in harbor when we need to regather our energies, and also to answer the calling of moving out of the safety of harbor and sharing and holding what life has given us and what history is calling us to. So let's take a moment and sit together.
Thank you for your listening. So this is the time we have an opportunity for questions or sharing. Anything that is in your heart you would like to speak from or to. As a Berkeley person, as a theorist, as an activist, I'm wondering what my correct attitude should be also as a, a colleague of the university, both a townie and a gownie, to BP uniting with an engineering department on campus, a project that's been in the works for five years now and coming closer to fruition probably will be working in 2011. I mean, just ranting at them. I, I, I think I missed um, a little part of what you were saying. What um, British Petroleum is making a common cause with one of the engineering departments on the campus, uh, a nanotechnology engineering department. They have oh, two okay. wings. They have the right. public sector, right. which is open and the private sector, which is covered by proprietary information. Right. So you right. can see which way the information will right. go. Right. But BP isn't just in the Gulf. Right. It's in this town. Right. Right. It's us. Right. It's providing a, a big chunk of the hope of the university because the so university... I, can I stop you right there? Sure. Because... Um, here is the invitation that each one of us actually has the possibility of meeting, and that is refraining from blaming and judging. Oh no! No, no, wait, just stop. And I'm and I'm stopping you, and I mm-hmm. uh, because I really want to check when we speak to the incredible suffering that is caused because of the structure of of really our world. It's easy when we don't fully feel the pain of it and also the places where we ourselves have acted unconsciously. When we don't feel that, it's very easy 
to make people our enemies. And there's a tone in which I heard you speak that triggered this response inside of me. And and when we when we blame when we blame ourselves or others, we are shutting down our hearts. And when our hearts are shut down, we shut down the possibility of a movement for change. And so I watch my mind blame and judge all the time. I watch it does I go into an airport and I watch people walking by me and I'm judging what they wear. I'm like, who cares what they wear, Arena? But the mind is judging, judging, judging. So and then when it's so much bigger and it's so hard to hold the impact of ignorance in the world, it's so easy to move out rather than to hold that 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 to hold that so i want to invite you and us again as we acknowledge bp here and the ways that ignorance works both in our own minds and the ways that we judge ourselves and how it works through them in acknowledging that then how we talk about it is different because we're seeing human beings and that has to be our ground it doesn't mean we're not critical and it doesn't mean we're not active but it's our ground because if we don't see one other person as a human being it sorry we're not seeing ourselves as a human being there's some part of myself i'm not seeing as a human being yeah. and so that's the ground that we respond from and it's an incredibly difficult ground and and i watch myself over and over when i see the bp representatives on tv i watch how i'm making them not a human being you know just a bad person and that's our challenge you know so um and the what's wonderful about being here together and you know that's why i talked about it tonight is that if we acknowledge the pain of what's going on not only in the gulf as you mentioned but everywhere we come back or we come closer to acknowledging our humanity in theirs so thank you yes could you pass the mic down Um I liked it when you said uh, it really resonated with me when you said that um if I just explain it to them it, it'll be there there'll be change you know I, and I remember going through that period when I if I I've got it right now and if I just explain it uh they will join me in this action and the war will stop you know um or whatever it is and um one thing don't you think that part of that is that we're not listening to the other person and so we make assumptions um i i think we are i'll speak for myself a very poor listener sometimes and i don't hear where other people are coming from and so i get very angry because 
I explain it to them, and they don't heed my words at all. Um, so listening uh, is a very important thing, I think, don't you? I'd like to open it up and see what other people say, what some of your responses Yes, yes. Could you pass the mic? I think it might be off. Is it off? Um, what I'm thinking of saying is just very simple, but I, and it's, um, my experience for myself and I think for a lot of other people, it's really hard to listen to somebody who doesn't agree with you. It's, it's a real challenge and, I admire so much when I see that someone can do that, yeah. to stay open and actually right. listen and take in right. their point of view. Right, right. Thank you for acknowledging that. You know, and I, here's, I think, where forgiveness comes in, because the process of opening, really, the process of opening fully to our own suffering, to our own pain and shame and judgment, is a long-term affair. In fact, I used to co-lead retreats with a wonderful Sangha person, Eric Kolbeck, and he used to wear this T-shirt that said, the road to enlightenment is long and arduous, so make sure you take lots of good magazines and drinks on the way. And it's just to acknowledge that we are in a developmental process and that the ways that we have defended ourselves, one of the primary ways we have defended ourselves against that pain is to hold on to beliefs and ideas. So it's not just that they're beliefs or ideas. They are part of what we construct as our defense. We hold on to them as a way to find our place because we haven't fully found our place in our own hearts. So I, you know, I remember myself as, you know, as a very, very troubled a younger person and totally ideological. And, you know, this, this incredible Marxist when I was in my 20s, you know, and everyone else was... Um, Bourgeois. I didn't use that word, but that's kind of what comes to mind. And and you know, and it was, and I see now that it was so much, and and those things, and I can easily we can use Buddhism the same way, and I can use Buddhism the same way, where we take a set of ideas and beliefs because we're trying to protect ourselves and to place ourselves in the world, and then when someone challenges it.
It's not just challenging an idea. It's challenging our defenses and challenging where we thought we were placed. And so it's excruciating. And it's really hard to listen to someone who's doing that. So I just want to support holding forgiveness in that place where we find we aren't listening and when we find others aren't listening because that's what's happening and because it's a it's a long it's a long road to enlightenment and this process of opening is slow if it wasn't slow we would all be sitting here in deep samadhi and peace because some of us have been practicing for over 30 years i have you know and so it's slow and i think it takes and so it it in that understanding it's easier to forgive ourselves and others when we find ourselves not listening and at the same time it might be helpful to acknowledge that to say oh i just want to acknowledge in naming the differences that it might be touching some core place inside of ourselves and that that feels um threatening you know it's feeling threatening right now and just naming the process in the same way that we name what's going on in our meditation practice begins to open it up does that make sense yeah yeah yes could pass the mic back behind you yeah hi um quick comment about what you said i think we can only listen generally when we feel safe and when we don't it's much harder to listen uh and often we don't listen because we feel under threat yes. in some way yeah. like you said yeah. uh followed by a kind of a non-buddhist question uh the 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 process of judgment and not blaming and all this seems often like an uphill battle for an individual say the question is are things going to come at him from the world or her faster than he or she is capable of handling and often if it's too extreme they, they it can't be done and i'm i've been puzzled by why buddhist process and practice seems almost directly opposite to the human tendency in general you know it's it's hard not to judge it takes training and years and it's easy to do the other and it's it seems strange that the flow of life would go opposite to what leads to compassion and yeah so it's a non-buddhist yeah. query but well, there it is i think it's very buddha thank you <laughs> you know that buddha looked into the origin of the world after he had his opening into his full awakening as a buddha and he he said and this is i don't know if any of you have read um knee deep in grace by deepama uh about deepama she uh, she was a teacher who taught at ims insight meditation society in 1984 and one of the acknowledged fully awakened beings an arahant an amazing very small um bangladeshi woman with an incredible mind and i'm just saying this in case you don't uh, um because it it gives weight to what it said the buddha could do she said she could go back mind moment of mind moment back 
through history to the times when the Buddha spoke and actually listen to his Dharma talks. So just to acknowledge the capacity of a mind, he said he could go back mind moment after mind moment into sort of into um, uh, eons of the expression of life and he said he couldn't find a beginning and he couldn't find a beginning of ignorance, that there was no point where ignorance just started. That ignorance or that tendency to judgment and to delusion and to greed and hatred was there at the very origin of, or, or at, was there in beginningless eons. And so, you know why? Hard, hard to say why. I bowed down to the, to the strength of those energies of ignorance and how they manifest in our lives. And even more, I bow down to our capacity for love and wisdom and courage and strength and joy because they are stronger. And if they weren't stronger, we wouldn't be sitting here. And really, in a way, to say that every one of us here is a lineage holder of that great courage and love. Because our parents, no matter how dysfunctional they were, survived. And that means the love and strength and courage was stronger than the destructive forces. And when we see it that way, there's nothing to do but bow down, you know, in grace to the incredible beauty of the energies of love and wisdom and courage that live through the pervasiveness of darkness and ignorance. It's amazing. So... Thank you for that question. Yeah. So oh, one more. Uh, okay. Yeah. Can you pass the mic? Hi. I just want to say thank you so much. I love your talks, and that it would be an honor to come over and change your sheets. Oh. If you <laughs> <ever need that. laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> so we're coming to the end of our evening, and um, let's stand up together. And in some way, if you feel comfortable holding hands, just coming together. We probably won't all be able to hold each everyone's hand, but some kind of holding. And see if you would like to close your eyes for a moment and acknowledge that we are part of a community. Acknowledging our strength, our wisdom, and our courage and our capacity to hold the unpredictability of life as a community. We share this blessing 
of coming together with all beings. May all beings have the same conditions as we do to come together to learn to hold life together. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for your practice and presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.